All right. Well, good morning. Uh, I thought we'd start off this morning with a little uh, Seinfeld for you guys. Well, a few reasons for that clip. First of all, uh, Seinfeld is by far my favorite TV show of all time. So, uh, two, I, I love that Steinbrenner uh, doesn't know the name of his grandkids. I think that's just kind of funny. Comes in, and he's yelling at him. He doesn't know which one's Mel. He's just grabbing whichever one. Third reason why I kind of shared that clip this morning is because in honor of the, of the Rangers knocking off the Yankees yesterday. Uh, for you guys who are Rangers fans, amen, right? Um, Fourth reason and the real reason why I showed that clip this morning, I think it really hits right at the core of, of a huge felt need for a lot of us this morning. I don't know where you are at this point in the semester between different rounds of tests, but if you're anything like me, probably the, the fundamental feeling I have right now is one of fatigue and tiredness. I'm just tired right now. And Thanksgiving is not close enough to have the promise of refreshment to be uh, really helpful that much right yet. And so between more tests to come between another month before Thanksgiving, I'm just tired. And I don't feel a great means or as I look at my schedule wondering how in the world I'm going to find refreshment as I change my schedule because there's no way to change it. I don't know about you guys, but if you're anything like me, I think a lot of us at this point in this semester are tired. We're just flat out tired. We want some refreshment and we're wondering when we're going to get it and we're wondering how we're going to get it. Ultimately, you're going to see Kramer or George as he kind of looks for refreshment during his work day. He's going to choose a timing and he's going to choose a technique that's going to lead not to rest, but it's going to lead to more stress. He's going to choose a timing and a technique that leads not to more rest, but actually he's going to find a means that leads to more stress than anything else. And what I want to do for this morning, in kind of a roundabout way, as we look at Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, is we're going to tackle this topic of rest. In fact, that word rest is going to show up 10 different times in our passage, Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. We're going to look in particular, what is the rest of God and how do you and I experience the rest of God? And try to come back kind of in a roundabout manner than asking the question, how do you and I handle our fatigue at this point in the semester when, when Thanksgiving is another month away? And how do we handle the discouragements, the fatigue, the stress of this semester at this point in time? What do we do? Where do we go? Where do we find rest? That's really where I think the writer of Hebrews is going to take us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to read and then pray for us. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we have believed, enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. And for those who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You pray with me. Father God, we give you great thanks that there is a rest that remains available to us. 
a rest that you have experienced, a rest that you have bestowed upon us and made available to us this morning, Lord. And I ask, just as we open your word in, in a unique passage and a challenging passage, Lord, I pray that you would guide us and that you would direct us. Father, the reality is when we came to you for the first time, we were broken and a mess. And even after having come to you, even after having believed in your son, Jesus Christ, we remain a mess. We remain those who struggle with difficulties, who struggle with discouragement, who struggle with fatigue. And in the midst of those places, Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak afresh to us, uh, that you would come, that you would uh, remind us afresh of truth. I pray that you would convict us afresh of disobedience. I pray that you would draw us nearer to you. As we were broken before we came and as we remain broken even now, Lord, I pray that your spirit would remind us of truth and that you would draw us nearer to you. And that the commands of your word would not be burdensome and exhausting to us, Lord, but I pray that in them, in our pursuit of obedience, in our pursuit of you, Lord, I pray that we would find refreshment. We would find truth reaffirmed, that we'd find conviction, that we would find hope and a joy in a pursuit of you. Father, I pray that you would just take us wherever you would please this morning. And we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter four. Ultimately, as we kind of walk through this section, the word rest is going to be used 10 different times in these 13 verses. And so the great question becomes, what in the world is the rest that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? You and I, when we think of a rest, we're just thinking of a nap that we're going to get uh, this afternoon on a couch. We're looking for something temporal, something quick, something easily reached. I'm going to argue in many regards that the rite of Hebrews is going to take us in a roundabout way to experience and help us find where refreshment is found. But what we're going to realize is the rest that he's talking about is quite a bit different than the rest that we so often feel like we need and the rest that we so often pursue. So what is the rest that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? Notice in verse chapter 4, verse 1, notice that the rest is something that the writer will re- refer to as a promise. He says, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest. Notice that this rest is something that he's going to refer to as a promise. But even notice, it's not just a promise of something to come, but it's a promise of something that was available to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and something that's available to you and I right now. Well, what in the world was available to the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament that's also available to you and I right now? Some of us and many that, that walk through the book of Hebrews will argue that that rest which the writer of Hebrews is talking about is heaven itself. Heaven that was available to the Old Testament nation of Israel, but also heaven that's available to you and I. I'm going to argue as we look through Hebrews chapter 4 that that's not heaven. That the rest that the writer of Hebrews is referring to is not in reference to heaven. And ultimately I'd argue that because the conditions of Israel's failure to experience this rest were not the same as the conditions that you and I have that are put before us as to whether we could enter into heaven or not. How do you and I have confidence that we will one day stand in the presence of God? Our confidence rests not at all on our own lives and how we've lived, but it rests entirely on what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Simply put, the very foundation, the starting point for everything that's about spirituality and Christianity is about what Jesus Christ did and who he is. According to Hebrews, he is the son, he is the exalted one, he is the one who's in the nature of the image of God the Father himself. He's also the one who took on human flesh and he lived and he died a perfect life, taking on a penalty for our sins, dying in our place. His sacrifice was one that was substitutionary on our behalf. And so why do we have confidence that one day we will be in the presence of God? It has nothing to do with the way that you and I live. It has everything to do with what you and I have believed as to whether we've believed that Jesus Christ died and resurrected. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is the foundation point for all of Christianity and for all of our spirituality as we walk with Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 is going to take us a bit of a different direction, and I'm going to argue that because the conditions of whether one enters or experiences this rest or not are not the same as the conditions for whether you and I experience and participate in heaven. 
particularly, I've noticed as a lot of you guys walked in this morning that a lot of y'all have uh, half faces that are sunburned, all right? Uh, at some level, you guys failed the test. The test that you guys failed was that you were meant to put sunscreen on that face, all right? The fact that you failed that test, your failure shows me something. It shows me that you didn't think through sunscreen. It does not tell me that you're looking to be in drama and trying to play some two-faced character, right? The most natural response of your failure is that you just forgot sunscreen. So you guys have lathered on the aloe vera, got a nice little shiny uh, gloss that's upon your face, like my buddy down here. You know, a lot of you guys have been there, all right? Uh, so all of you guys, you know, for some of y'all who have walked through that, you guys failed the test, but your failure has nothing to do with your desire to be in drama. It has everything to do with the fact that you just forgot to put on sunscreen because every home game we've had so far was a night game, right? This is the first day game we've had, and you guys forgot about it. It's natural. It's okay. All right, but what's going to happen, what you're going to see, though, as we walk through Hebrews is that the failure, the conditions of their failure are going to highlight and prove to us exactly what they're missing out on. Notice for me, if you look at verse 2, chapter 4, what were the conditions of their failure? What is this rest? Verse 2, for indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. There was a failure of their faith, simply put. There was a failure of belief in this nation of Israel and that plagued them and that caused them to miss out on the rest that they could have experienced. If you guys were with us last week, we walked through the last half of chapter 3 and we looked in more particular, what was their failure of faith? What, in particular, what was the rest that they missed out on? And so we're kind of picking up a little bit from last week, but what we saw last week, in what ways did their faith fail? Their faith failed in particular in that when they got out of Egypt, when they left Egypt, when God delivered them out of Egypt, they had believed God, they had put blood on doorposts, and the angel of death passed over on the night of Passover. Then they left. Uh, God provided miraculous for their deliverance, for their uh, exodus out of Egypt. But once they got into the wilderness, and as they began to walk, what happened? They got hungry, and they began to doubt God. They got thirsty and they began to doubt God. And eventually, right before they're going to go into the very promised land, the land of Canaan that God has promised to them, they send a few scouts in. And those scouts who believed that the giants would kill them won the day and the nation of Israel failed to believe God. Now, what was the nature of their failure of faith? They had trusted God as they left Egypt, but then that faith, that trust did not continue along. It wasn't that they failed to trust God to forgive them for their sins, but they failed to continue to trust God in the daily realities of their life. They believed that he could part the Red Sea. They believed that he could kill the Egyptian army, but they did not believe that he could handle their hunger and their thirst. In particular, we looked last week even at Exodus 16 when God provides manna out of heaven and fulfills their hunger. And then one chapter later, one month later, as they're traveling, they get thirsty. And after seeing God provide miraculously for their hunger, they don't trust him for their thirst. <laughs> After they just saw God do the Red Sea, they just saw God provide manna, and yet the nature of the human condition is that you and I are so quick and so easily pulled away from trusting God in the midst of our life, in the midst of our details. The reality is the nation of Israel is going to fail to continue to trust God, and that failure and that disbelief is going to lead to disobedience. Look with me, verse 6. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter this rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Notice they, they failed to trust God, and then their failure to trust God led to disobedience. They failed to obey. They failed to trust, and then they failed to obey. I'll argue to you guys, and we're going to hit this as we kind of end up later this morning, is that every time that you and I disobey God, it's not because we're just horribly sinful people who have some raging lust or some raging desire for something. Ultimately, we fail to obey God, not because we're just horribly depraved, which we still are, even if we've come to Jesus Christ, but because we're meager and weak in our faith. 
Where you and I fail to obey God is the same place that you and I doubt his purposes, his promises, and his nature. You and I don't disobey just because we have some craving desire for something. You and I disobey God because ultimately we don't believe he has our best interests at heart. We don't believe that he's good. We don't believe that he's powerful. We don't believe that he's going to fulfill his promises. And so we cut short and we pull off and we fade away. Ultimately, our faith and our obedience go hand in hand. Not faith toward the forgiveness of sins and toward heaven, but faith toward the ongoing walk with Jesus Christ and the particulars of our day. And when our faith fails and we disobey, we saw last week what happened for the nation of Israel. When they began to doubt the purpose, the promises, the plan of God, their hope was lost. It was crushed. When that happened, we noticed next that their heart became hardened. They began to grumble. They began to complain. And it didn't just leave and stay at a spiritual and emotional issue. But the next thing they did was they began to doubt the authority of God in their life. The next thing they did was they began to pull away from the authority of God and not just God himself, but even his appointed leaders. And they began to shun, to be unsubmissive and to begin to vote for a new leader. They just pulled back and pulled away. But how in the world did they get there? It all began when their faith failed. They began to stop trusting God's character, his promises, thinking that he couldn't fix their problems and fix their fatigue and fix their discouragement. I don't know if you guys are there at all at this point in the semester. (laughs) Whether you're fatigued, whether you're tired, whether you're discouraged, because it's often in that place that it's a breeding ground for our faith to begin to weaken and to fail. I want to ask you this morning, in the midst of your walk with Christ, in the midst of wherever you are, are there things that you're doubting that he could do? Are there things that you're doubting that he's going to do? Are there promises that you know are in the word of God, but you begin and wonder whether he's actually going to do those things at all? Because it's in that place as that begins to breathe that you and I begin to move into a different place where we begin to question and throw off the authority of God in our life and we no longer obey him. That's where the nation of Israel went. And that's where potentially for the people of the book of Hebrews where they could go and the results and the ramifications of that was that they were going to miss out on something. In particular, what were they going to miss out? We find from Moses and for his generation, they're going to die and their bodies are going to fall in the wilderness and they're going to miss out on seeing the promised land. Their lack of faith, their lack of obedience meant they couldn't foresee and they couldn't experience and participate in the fulfillment of God's promises and his plans. And so Moses and that generation fall in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb lead the next generation into the promised land, but even they fall short and they don't get to see the fulfillment in full of all of God's promises. Particularly the rest of God is the fulfillment of his plan and his promises, but it is not heaven. It is not heaven. It's something different and it's something in complement to it. Particularly we find in the Old Testament, what did God say to the nation of Israel? What was his plan in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel? Really his plan gets thrown out and gets unfolded to us in a set of promises that are known as covenants to the Old Testament. I don't have time to completely unpack that, but simply put, when God made promises to Abraham, to Moses, and then to David, the essence of the promises and the plan that God had for the Old Testament nation of Israel, what God wanted to do was take the ethnic people of Israel and put them on a land that had physical dimensions. And what he wanted to do with that nation on a land was he wanted to establish a king over that nation who would rule over that nation and over all nations. And that nation of Israel was going to have peace on that land from all their enemies. And as you walk through the Old Testament, what we see over and over again is that as the people of Israel obeyed God, they found blessing on the land. In fact, if you'll notice uh, in Joshua chapter one, this is what God told Joshua as he took the reins of the nation of Israel. He said this to him, be strong and courageous, code for keep trusting me. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. 
What was God's plan for the nation of Israel? He wanted to put them securely and safely in peace on the land of Israel. And he wanted them to have peace from their enemies. And he was going to establish a kingdom in that land with a king who was going to reign. And that king would reign in a way that brought righteousness and justice to the nation of Israel and to all the other nations. And as Israel obeyed God and they worshiped God, they got to see this fulfilled in their lifetime. And so as you walk through the Old Testament, as you walk through the stories and the prophets, all that you see over and over again, Old Testament 101 theology here for you, when Israel obeys, they're blessed. When Israel disobeys, they're cursed. So if they obey God, they worship God, what they find is they get an experience of his rest in part. They get to see the fulfillment of his promises extended to the nation of Israel. When they obey, they're on the land. They have peace from enemies, and it's all good. They have fruit, they have vegetation, but when they disobey, guess what happens? Old Testament, over and over again, they're thrown off the land. The enemies of the land, the inhabitants of the land, oppress and crush them. They cry out to God, and eventually they return to God again. They obey God, they worship God, they're back on the land, they have peace on the land. And what you see over and over again from the nation of Israel, though, is that they ultimately never perfectly believe and perfectly obey God. And yet, as we kind of walk through, what we're going to notice, though, is who was the one who was going to come and establish that kingdom? Picking up a little bit even from some of the discussions we've had earlier on this semester about the book of Hebrews, Psalm 2. Who was the one who was going to come one day and reign? Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Psalm 2 foretold of the one who would come, who was going to be the son of God, also the son of David, who established that kingdom on the land of Israel and provide them peace. Psalm 2 describes the reign of Jesus Christ when he will eventually return. Not his reign at his first coming, but his reign at the second coming. But notice the writer of Hebrews is going to say, when he comes to establish that reign, and he comes to fulfill the purposes and the promises and the plans of God, what we're going to have is Jesus Christ reigning from Jerusalem, providing the nation of Israel peace on the land, and ruling over all the nations of the earth. But notice the writer of Hebrews said that they never experienced it in the Old Testament, but it is now a promise that remains for you and I. Now, now notice what happens in Revelations chapter 2. We talked about this a bit a few weeks ago, but maybe about a month ago. Revelations 2, Jesus Christ is evaluating one of his Gentile churches, a church just like one of ours, and he says this to them. He who overcomes, a word that we sing over and over again this morning, who is faithful to the end, And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as also I have received authority from my Father. What is Jesus Christ doing in Revelations 2? He's extending the promise that he will fulfill and involving the Gentile church, you and I. What he's saying in Revelations 2 is that for you and I who obey and who walk faithfully, you and I will have an opportunity to participate in the rest of God as Jesus comes and he reigns and he involves you and I in that reign. Are we talking about heaven? No. (laughs) This is something different and before heaven. The thing we believe is that Jesus Christ, or God promised to the nation of Israel a bunch of promises that he has not fulfilled to them yet. And he promised those promises to to them unconditionally. If they obeyed, they could foresee it and experience it in their lifetime, but God's eventual fulfillment of those promises had nothing to do with whether they obeyed him perfectly or not. But it had everything to do with what God could do and would do one day. And so what's our expectation of the future? Our expectation is that a day is coming when Jesus Christ will return. And when he returns, he will return and set up a kingdom established in the land of Israel in Jerusalem that will have its wings and its branches extending to all nations. 
on that day when he returns, the promise of Revelation 2 and what we're looking at throughout the New Testament is that for you and I who overcome, who are faithful, who continue to worship and obey for a lifetime, what we find is that we get an involvement and a participation in that kingdom one day. Not heaven, because heaven is received absolutely freely, but for you and I as a reward to obedience, as a reward to faithfulness, this is our participation, this is our experience. Notice the rest of God in Hebrews 4 is very different than the rest that you and I feel like we need. (laughs) Notice the rest of Hebrews 4 is one that's coming in the future, one that will be a fulfillment of all of God's plans and all of his promises. God is not one day just going to recreate the earth. What he's going to do before he does that is refashion and fulfill the promises he had for a broken humanity and a broken world, but he's going to show his sovereignty and his power by fulfilling his original plan before he recreates and restarts everything and brings us to a new heavens. Before all that, we're going to see he's going to establish a kingdom and he's going to use humanity to represent and to rule with him and for him over the nations. That's the promise that you and I get to be a part of. And with that comes glory and honor. It's not an idea that we normally talk about. And yet that's central for what the nation of Israel missed out on. And it's central to what you and I have been invited into. In a sense, you and I have been invited into a party and we just ride Jesus' coattails into it. These were promises originally extended to the nation of Israel, but because you and I are in Jesus Christ, because we've trusted him, all that he's going to fulfill, we get to be a part of and have participation in it. All right, so how do you and I experience that? If if that was why they failed, and this is what the rest of God is, how in the world do you and I experience that? Where are we moving next? All right, how do you and I experience it? Simply put, I think uh, you and I are called and challenged to trust him fully. The nation of Israel, when they get hungry and they get thirsty and they see big, big giants, they kind of balk, they fade away, they shrink away. The challenge for you and I to experience and to foresee all that God intends and wants for our lives is to continue to walk with him in faith. The nation of Israel is going to miss it. In reality, for me, I often think about, back to my life and I think, why is it easier for me to believe in one who was fully man, fully God, who died and was resurrected than it is to believe that he could take care of my career and my marriage one day? Why is it when I was in college, I had a lot harder time trusting him with career and spouse than I did with the fact that one could be God and man who could die in my behalf and in my place and resurrect? Why is it easier at times to trust him in crisis than it is in the particulars of our day? Nation of Israel fails and and falls short in regards to their hunger and their thirst and then the big giants and the present obstacles that were in front of them. And I think for you and I, we're often like that. We can trust them with these big things, but in the little things, we often fall short I want to ask you this morning in the midst of wherever you are at this point in the semester, where is it that your faith is weak? Where is it you're wrestling in that you're really struggling with whether Christ can do something and whether he'll fulfill and come through on his promises and whether he's good? Uh, In many regards, uh, a lot of you guys know Marcy, but uh, I can trust her in just about every single arena in my life. I can trust her through just about anything, but there's one area that I have a hard time trusting, and that is in the area of haircuts, all right? Uh, First year of marriage, uh, we were in seminary, we were broke and poor and just trying to scrape by, and so one of the things that we decided to not outsource was my haircuts, all right? I didn't realize actually until marriage that I had curly hair, I used to keep it like a military core cut, all right? So my whole life, no idea I had curly hair. Marcy encouraged me to grow it out, and then when it grew out, I couldn't trust that to anyone, right? You know, cutting this takes a little more skill than just a pair of clippers going around, right? So Marcy decides she's going to try to cut it, and it's going great until she snips my earlobe at one point, all right? Now, uh, 
I might have a tendency to be a little dramatic. It really wasn't that big of a deal, all right? But from that moment on, I've always had a deep, dark fear of her with a pair of scissors around my ears, okay? I can trust her in every different arena, but in that one regard, I, I struggle, okay? And my question for you this morning is, in the midst of your own walk with God, where are the areas that you struggle to trust him? Where are the areas that your faith is weak? Where are the areas that you don't know whether he is good or you question whether he is powerful enough to move? I want to challenge you this morning because it's in those areas that you are in a breeding ground for where disobedience will begin to move you and take you. That where you begin to doubt his promises, where you're beginning to grumble and complain, where you're beginning to throw off the authority of God is the very place that you're going to begin to respond inappropriately to his commands and to his call. What we're going to see next is that it's not just that you and I are called to trust him fully, but ultimately you and I are called to obey him fully. Not just trust him fully, but obey him fully. And if we can grow our faith and our faith can remain and we won't fail and fall short, then we'll continue to press forward and obey and walk with him in courage. Israel begins to grumble and they begin to complain. They begin to throw off the authorities. But the writer of Hebrews will call us in verse 11. He says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The writer of Hebrews will say, you and I are called to obey fully. You and I are called to be diligent as we press forward. In many regards, I think our disobedience is always linked to disbelief. I want to ask you this morning, if you actually allow the Lord to have some time and examine you, where are you failing to walk according to what he's called you to do? You may know off the top of your head, you may know straight from this weekend, I don't know. But in the midst of the areas that you're struggling to obey him, in the midst of the areas that you're struggling to actually follow through on what you know he's called you to, my question is why? Why are you falling or why are you struggling to follow through in obedience? I'd argue that there's, at its essence, there's something you believe or disbelieve about the character, the purposes, and the plans of God. Ultimately, as you struggle relationally, wondering whether God's going to provide a spouse, some of us begin to respond inappropriately, taking things and going places that we ought not go. Ultimately, I think that's because we think that God's not watching, God's not caring, God doesn't notice our struggle. Which is why I love what he's going to say in verses 12 and 13 is going to be a bit of the solution. He's going to say, ultimately, that we're to seek him in his word. But notice how he says it in verses 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I think it's really interesting that as you and I struggle at times to follow through and obey, a couple things are often happening. One, we begin to think that maybe God doesn't see. (laughs) Maybe he either doesn't see me as I respond in disobedience, or maybe he doesn't see my struggle Therefore, he doesn't care about my struggle because if he did see my struggle, he'd fix it or he'd change it. And therefore, I don't believe that he's good. I I don't know where you are this morning in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that desire to walk faithfully with him. But I've found in my own life what's really, really interesting in the midst of fatigue, in the midst of discouragement, I begin to wonder really not just about disobeying and, and grabbing something that I should not grab, but ultimately it's a question of my faith. Do I believe the purpose, the promises, and the person of God? Does he see? Does he care? Does he love me? Will he provide for me? Will he protect me? Ultimately, all my issues of disobedience always go back to an issue of faith of what I believe about who he is and what he's going to do. And whether I believe that he'll follow through on his promises and that it'll provide for me and that it'll protect me. My failure to obey is always a failure of faith. They're always linked together. That failure, though, never leads to a, a removing of the unconditional promises of heaven. 
Uh, I kind of flip past a, a verse I want you guys to see real quick. Though is Romans chapter 8. From the standpoint of the gospel, the Jews, Israel, are enemies. But from God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Let me hear and say as clearly and as powerfully and as strongly as I can. Your continual obedience has nothing to do whatsoever with whether you're going to remain in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your relationship with Jesus Christ was forged and it began because you believed absolutely unconditionally and you received a free gift. A free gift that you do not have to maintain by your obedience and your faithfulness. Because your faithfulness and your obedience has nothing to do with whether you actually get to keep that gift, but it has everything to do with whether you'll receive reward in addition to that gift. Your faithfulness and your obedience has nothing to do with whether you'll maintain and keep heaven. It has everything to do with whether you'll receive the reward of the rest that's in addition and in place or before that actual experience of heaven. Obedience leads to reward. It does not leave or prove heaven. And I know for a lot of you guys, depending on who you listen to, who you love for podcasting, that's coming at a different theological bit than a lot of you guys have. Some of y'all... Maybe you've never heard anything regarding that discussion, in which case you're good with me, all right? If you've got some questions, I'd love to talk even more a little bit later. But ultimately, as the writer of Hebrews comes and he addresses people, he's confident that are in the faith. His concern for them is that they can miss out on something that's not heaven. But in particular, they can miss out on an experience of, of God's rest, something that's coming in the future, the full fulfillment of God's promises as his Messiah comes, returns, and sets up a kingdom on earth. For those that are faithful, the reward is that you and I get to participate and reign with Jesus Christ in that coming kingdom when the nation of Israel is present and also his church as well. So that is Hebrews 4, all right? So what do we do and where do we go? I love where he ends his passage, though, in that you and I are called to seek him and remain faithful to his word. I think in the midst of fatigue, in the midst of discouragement, the first thing that often goes for me is exercise (laughs) and uh, staying in the word of God, okay? Uh, Which are both interesting enough muscle activities, all right? Exercise is your physical activity to, to maintain stamina. Staying in the word of God is your spiritual activity to maintain stamina in the midst of fatigue, in the midst of discouragement. The thing that I think you're going to see from Hebrews 4 and the thing I want to hit you guys with this morning is that faithfulness Remaining, being consistent, and continuing to believe and obey is more refreshing than faithlessness. Faithlessness will lead to more stress. It will not lead to rest. In the midst of our struggles to trust God, in the midst of our struggles of fatigue or even discouragement, the temptation at times is to bail out. That was the temptation for the audience of the book of Hebrews. The temptation for you and I is the same. That when we doubt him, when we struggle with him, we pull away and we bail out in some regards. So the writer of Hebrews is going to end this section pulling us back to what is our anchor and what is our confidence. He says, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper. It's able to pierce us. It's able to penetrate our lives and our hearts. And it's also a bulwark or it's a foundation, an anchor for which we get a reminder of truth. It is that which helps our faith continue to grow. It helps our faith continue to be nourished. It helps our faith have stamina, continually come back to the objective truth of the character, the purpose, and the promises of God. Do you know who God is? Do you know his promises? Do you know his plans? Do you know where he's moving human history? And then do you have a clue how you've been invited to be a part of that? For some of us, that's where we come back to. It's our foundation spot. It's our anchor. It's that which reminds us of truth. But it is not just a reminder of truth, but it is that which can pierce like a sword and convict us of sin. In the midst of those areas that we're beginning to pull away from him, it comes in and it challenges us and it convicts us and it calls us back to him. I don't know where you are this morning. I want to challenge us, though, in the midst even of fatigue, in the midst of stress, that we would continue to center ourselves around this thing. 
that we continue to open it up, not just on a Sunday morning when you guys walk in here, but you would make it a daily part of your lives. And ultimately, I want to challenge you regarding that in particular uh, in a couple ways. One is I want to challenge you guys to make a goal even this week that maybe for five minutes, if it's just five minutes, that you'd spend some time in this thing. And the second thing I want to challenge you guys to is going to be a little bit countercultural. And it's this. I want to challenge you guys for one day, some point this week, to take a fast for media. I want to challenge you guys one day this week to take a fast from media. Unplug your TV, unplug Facebook if you can actually bear it. Uh, put your phone away and the internet and the texting and the phone calls on it and spend one day where you unplug. And here's why. Our church staff has been reading a book this semester called Amusing Ourselves to Death, all right? Didn't really actually realize this at this, actually, at this age, and this will kind of shock some of y'all, but to muse, it literally means to think or ponder, all right? So to amuse yourself literally means to engage in an activity in which you don't have to think or ponder. Never put that together in my whole life. It was a newsflash for me, one of those moments, all right? Um, and so here's the, the, the book that we've been reading, and the idea behind the book is that it was actually originally written in the mid-'80s when TV was becoming the dominant form of entertainment and also the do- dominant form in which people got their information. In that day and time, the writer of, the book, of this book was actually arguing that for many that there was going to be some dangers with TV, all right? Now, let me, before I kind of give you guys a quote, I'm not saying... TV is bad, all right? You guys have heard too many sermon illustrations from me about sports or about TV shows or a clip that I am not anti-TV, all right? Uh, But there is something, not necessarily intrinsic, but there is something about the gravitational pull of TV and a lot of the technologies in our life that I think a lot of us aren't aware of. Uh, A guy named Neil Postman wrote this book, and he's going to quote a guy named Huxley who's going to have a really interesting comment before the mid-'80s about TV that is so true, even about that age and the age that you and I live in with our PDAs and our phones and everything that gets us connected to the World Wide Web. Here's what he's got to say. I think it's really interesting. He says, People will come to love their oppression, particularly what were they being impressed by, the technologies that they adored that undo their capacities to think. When I come home sometimes from the day where I've been thinking all day, what I want to do is watch a show so that I don't have to think. All right. Notice what he says next. So Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. We would become a trivial culture failing to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions and pleasure. Huxley feared what we would love would ruin us. His point within the mid-80s as he was almost prophesying of our culture what would happen, and he didn't foresee the day of the World Wide Web and Phones that can get on- online, that can have little apps for Facebook so at the moment's notice. We know who's friending us and whatnot, okay? What, what he was saying, though, is absolutely true. You and I live in a culture, and our technologies have allowed us to be absolutely distracted, all right? I pull up at a stoplight, and I pull my phone out just to check a score, all right? I mean, like, I, even at a stoplight, I'm distracted, and I want to check something, all right? I don't go and drive until I put it away, all right? Um, so confessions with the pastor, all right? But, um, you know, uh, there is within me, whether it's at any moment that I have some downtime, my phone's coming out, I'm in a doctor's office, my phone's coming out, I'm at a stoplight. It doesn't matter. If I have some moments, my mind and my heart drifts to that which is often offered in technology, which is pleasure, which is connection. Also, too, what I think is really interesting about Huxley is he's going to say is that in the midst of particular our age where you and I can be so saturated and flooded with information, notice what he says that happens to the truth of God. That truth becomes irrelevant. 
either it gets completely lost in the mode of communication because there's so much, or the powers and the authorities that control those technologies have disrupted or have turned away from the truth of God, and they don't allow it to be a part of things. I think his quotes are really, really interesting, and so I want to challenge us as we end this morning uh, to consider a couple things. One, are you spending time in the Word of God? It is that which orients you to the truth of God. It is that which orients you to the commands and the word and lifestyle of walking with God. And second thing I want to challenge you guys too is to spend one day this week, if you can handle it, if you're courageous enough to do it, and unplug. All right? No Facebook for a day. I know that sounds like killer to some of y'all, all right? No technology for a day. No TV for a day. Even for me, that's killer, all right? I love to have even just a little bit of TV every day, all right? But to unplug and spend one day, and and the goal being that the voices and the flood of information of our culture for one day would stop. (laughs) And that in that space and the removal of that static, that you could have an opportunity to hear the voice and the word of God in a way that you don't normally daily because of the ways that our technologies have flooded our minds, flooded our lives, and provided us every ample opportunity for distraction. My phone's got robo-defense, all right? I found a new app, a new game, and I'm just completely distracted, all right? But for one day, all right, robo-defense is going down, okay? Uh, And I want to challenge you guys toward the same, that in the midst of the technologies and things that have been put at your fingertips, whether it's pleasure or distraction or entertainment, when you've begun to not think anymore, that you'd put those down and that you'd have the chance to hear the voice of God and the Spirit of God come and challenge you. That's my hope for you guys as we wrap up this morning. So let me pray for us. And as you guys bow, I want to let you guys know, one of the things we're going to be doing week to week this semester is having a few people up front here that are going to be here to pray with you guys. I'm always up front after the service, but if you want to have someone just to pray with, if you have someone that you want to just talk with and kind of wrestle with something that you're dealing with, these guys are going to be up here. We're going to have a guy and a girl. And so um, that's, that's available to you guys. We'd love for you all to know that. Also, before we kind of break, because as soon as I pray, you guys are just bolting out usually. So uh, just as a reminder, after the service, we're going to hit Cape Bridge. We'd love for you guys to join us. You take 2018, take Wellborn South, and it's going to be just a little ways on the left. Best burger joint in town. If you've not been there, it'll change your life. All right? On that note, let me pray. All right. Father God, we give you great thanks uh, that you are the Alpha, the Omega, you are the immortal King, and you are gracious and patient with us, that you would offer to us that which we could not merit in ourselves, a a relationship eternally with you, and that even in that you provide and you motivate us to walk faithfully with you, uh, forsaking the pleasures and distractions of our day and our life and pursuing that which will last for all of eternity, and offering to us an opportunity to reign with you in the kingdom that you will establish one day to come. Father, I pray that you allow our lives to have a perspective of what's to come and a value set upon that. That you would challenge us, that you would convict us where our values and our beliefs are falling short. That you would call us afresh to you this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you guys hopefully at lunch and we'll see you guys next week.